Hello, everyone, and welcome to We Should Probably Be Studying. My name is Paula Kincaid, and I am joined with my co-host and dear friend, Nick Johnson. Nick, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paula? Oh, I'm good. I could not complain. So if you're new to this podcast, be sure to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast streaming platform you're using, because that will help spread awareness of our podcast through some sort of fancy algorithm that makes more people see our show. So be sure to give us a five-star rating. Yes, we need to stay in the algorithm. Also, uh, make sure you hit the follow button so you can stay up to date with our future content. So we are just a guy and a girl trying to leave our mark in the social sciences. And the purpose of this podcast is to get the behind the scenes take on really interesting articles being published in the top management and organization journals from the people who know the work the best, the authors themselves. Whether or not you're a nerd at heart like me and my co-host Nick, or just a regular Joe or Jane Doe, we hope to provide an outlet for all people to learn about really interesting and insightful research, regardless of who you are and what you do to contribute to society. So sit back and relax. And enjoy our show. This is We Should Probably Be Studying. Today we are joined by Dr. Shannon Taylor. He has just had his paper along with three other co-authors recently published in the Journal of Applied Psychology. Their article is titled Beyond Targets and Instigators, Examining Workplace Incivility and Dyads and the Moderating Role of Perceived Incivility Norms. First, I just wanted to start off by saying congrats. JAP has a really high rejection rate, so that's exciting. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yes, thanks. It was yes. exciting for us, too. Okay, so... Dr. Taylor, please tell us a little bit about yourself academically and personally. Sure. So I am a professor of management at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. I'm also a husband and father of two and an avid soccer fan and a Francophile, right? So I'm currently taking French lessons. Okay. Yes. I know there's a MLS team out in Orlando. Have you been to the game yet? Yeah, Orlando City. Yeah, uh, they're in this thing called the Open Cup, where any professional or amateur team can enter this tournament, mm -hmm. and they've made it all the way to the finals. So they play in a couple of weeks here. I'm excited to go. Nice, exciting, awesome. DF, that is where you teach now. But what was the driving force that caused you to enter a PhD program? Yeah, so uh, I went to LSU for uh, my doctoral studies, and I went straight from undergrad. And to be perfectly honest, I sort of stumbled into it. When I was an undergrad, I was a finance major, and I was pretty certain that I was going to get into investing. I grew up in Illinois, so I thought I was going to get a job at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the Chicago Board of Trade. I was really interested in the psychology of investing, you know, why uh, do investors make really irrational decisions when the investment advice is pretty clear? And it was sometime during my junior year that I took a management course, a course in OB. And it sort of opened my eyes to this whole world of the psychology of work. And that's when I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to study this. I want to learn this stuff. You know, I stayed and finished my finance degree because I was sort of already well on that track, uh, but had started applying to to management PhD programs. So um, it, uh, you know, I sort of ended up there serendipitously, but was really grateful for, you know, ended up going to LSU. Awesome. How did you meet all of your co-authors and how did you all decide that you wanted to start collaborating together? 
Lauren was a PhD student at UCF. So, uh, you know, I had asked her if, you know, we'd, we'd worked on other stuff and I'd asked her about this project. And Don was actually on my dissertation committee at LSU. So uh, I've known him for a long time. And in fact, we both uh, moved to Northern Illinois University uh, back in 2012 and worked there for a few years. So anyway, I'd known Don for a long time and we've worked on multiple projects. So this was another one I asked him. And along the way, uh, we collected some more data for this project. I'll sort of, I can get into that later, but uh, to do so, Don asked one of his former doctoral students, Xin Xin Liu, uh, to help us with that. So that's how she came onto the project as well. Mm -hmm. You said you were collecting data. So were you collecting data before you had the idea for the paper? Or did you like how did the paper come about? Yeah, this this is a an idea that I had been thinking about for a long time, uh, maybe ten years, right? I mean, um, if you are familiar with the literature on workplace mistreatment, you might be aware of a paper by Anderson and Pearson. It's uh, in uh, the Academy of Management Review, published in 1999. It's really one of the seminal pieces. Uh, it's about workplace incivility and the title is tit for tat right and they have this model that says you know if you're rude to me i'm going to be rude to you and and it's really this dyadic relationship uh that they focus on and yet if you look at most of the research i would argue almost all of the research uh on mistreatment it's not dyadic right it asks have you ever been mistreated by all of your coworkers or any of your supervisors and coworkers, right? And so that's a really different experience, right? The answer to that question is different than have you been mistreated by this person? So anyway, so I, I knew for a long time that I wanted to try to tackle that mm -hmm. uh, question, but I didn't know how, right? 10 years ago, I wasn't sure like what methods to use, what data to collect, what analyses to do. Um, so I collected some initial data back in graduate school um, and then sort of sat on it for a really long time. Yes. Um, and, you know, flash forward to, you know, 10 years later, I'm at UCF and, you know, Lauren's in my office and we're talking about research and I pull out this idea and I said, here's this thing. I don't really know what to do with it. And she says, I think I can analyze it. I think I think I know how to do it. And that sort of reignited the paper. And, and that's when it really became, you know, went from idea to, to like a manuscript. Okay. Oh, neat. So if you had to give us, a one or two minute elevator pitch of your paper. What is that? Um, okay, so if, it, again, if you think about mistreatment, it's really about how two people interact with one another. And like I mentioned before, most of our, the organizational research doesn't focus on just two people. It looks at sort of like your general tendencies to be mistreated or to mistreat other people. And so we set out to understand how workplace incivility occurs in dyadic relationships. So I think we, you know, there are really sort of four important findings uh, from our, our paper. One is that experienced and instigated incivility do in fact exist uh, at the dyad level. There's in fact substantial variation there. In fact, there's about as much variance in incivility at the dyad level as there is at the person level. And yet all of the research is at the person level and none of it is at the dyad level. Uh, the second one is that is that experienced and instigated incivility are related to one another in dyads after accounting for people's individual differences, right? So no matter if I'm rude to lots of people in general or you're mistreated by lots of people in general, there's still something unique 
about our specific relationship that explains how well we get along to, together. Uh, the third thing is the moderating role of norms. Uh, I think the interesting part there is we split this idea of norms, this variable of norms into two distinct types of norms and show that uh, they both moderate and that the effect of injunctive norms is stronger than descriptive norms. And then finally, our, our data allow us to look at the prevalence of incivility in a different way. Uh, we get to look at the network of relationships in an organization. What we find is that incivility, at least in our sample, uh, is much less prevalent than if you think about incivility at the person level. So if you ask all of our you know, participants, was anybody rude to you in the last year? About 70% said, yeah. And that's consistent with other you know, uh, prior research. But when you look at the specific relationships between all the people, uh, only 16% of those relationships were characterized by rudeness. So, uh, I, you know, my hope is that this opens people's eyes to studying mistreatment and potentially other organizational variables from a dyadic perspective. Oh, yeah. And I've noticed that, too, in the broader organization literature, the dyadic research is not as developed as the individual level or even like at the organizational level. And I think that that's an important relationship that exists. And obviously in your finding, you did find that. And I think that that is really going to help push the literature towards researching at the dyadic levels. I hope so. Yeah. When you were writing the paper, were there any roadblocks that came across in your experience that were particularly memorable? Yeah, sure. So, um, we some in the spring of 2018 we submitted our manuscript to the journal of applied psychology and it was rejected and i read the reviews and i felt like the reviewers just didn't get it like they sort of missed the mark of what we were trying to say and the the letter explaining sort of the main reasons for the rejection just seemed off base to me. And I, I felt like they weren't substantial weaknesses, but were sort of like minor uh, points of clarity that could be sort of remedied really easily. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I appealed the decision. And, and I, I want to say that I've never done that before. And I didn't make that decision lightly. Uh, I talked to a lot of senior colleagues about this, uh, sure. about, about it. And, and ultimately, I wrote this letter and I tried to be very diplomatic and said, like, can we get a new set of reviews? I understand that the onus is on authors to convey their work clearly and in a compelling manner, but I just felt like there was just a big disconnect here. Uh, ultimately, the action editor declined my request for new reviews, and so I said, "Okay, right." I didn't, I didn't like the outcome, but you know, I could live with it. So later that spring, we submitted the paper to Personnel Psychology, mm -hmm. and we got an R and R. And, you know, we initially submitted just the what's now sample one. Along the way through the R&R, &R, we collected two more samples, samples two and three, added some things, changed a bunch of things, really, uh, in request, in response to the reviewers. Mm -hmm. And we went three rounds at Peace and were ultimately rejected. So uh, that was really devastating. Uh, it really gut-wrenching uh, to go, you know, sort of that far. It'd been under review for, you know, 18 months or something. So now we're at the very end of 2019. And so we went back to JAP and I wrote a, a letter to the editor and said, you know, it basically explained like, look, the paper's very different now than it was, you know, a year and a half ago. We've got new framing, new theoretical arguments, new hypotheses, new data. It's it's really different. Can we can we resubmit it here? 
and, and ultimately, you know, we were able to, and, and, and it went through the revision process. So, so that was, it was a real, real roller coaster, uh, uh, th- during the revision process. How do you manage different working styles, strategies, personal, you know, characteristics? How can a PhD student be successful when engaging with, you know, a professor? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, me personally, what I think students can do to become, you know, sort of valuable assets to research teams is to be able to collect data, uh, whether they have organizational contacts or they can run participants through a lab to have that skill set uh, or those that resource or those connections. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing I think that they can do to help themselves is to know how to analyze data in lots of different ways, right? So my advice to our graduate students and to graduate students, you know, at other places is to just learn lots of methods, lots of analyses. Um, you know, do you know SEM? Do you know multi-level analyses? Do you know survival analyses? Can you do polynomial regression? Like just, just you name it, uh, because you make yourself that much more valuable, right? If there's a if there's a research question, like you can analyze it, right? You can test it. So, so staying on top of your methods and analyses, I think, is a really uh, strong way uh, to to add value. So. I can imagine that first having your paper rejected to JAP was super disheartening, especially getting the denial for the appeal and then going through multiple rounds at PSYCH um, and then ultimately getting it rejected. I mean, that's got to hit your confidence level quite a bit. But whenever you sent the letter to the editor at JAP, were you pretty confident that they would consider it again um, and that it would... it might likely go under review a couple of rounds or were you pretty worried that it was just going to get another rejection um you know i wasn't i wasn't certain about it um but you know we just made a case uh that the paper was substantially different um you know in terms of its you know in in almost every conceivable way right the the framing was different the theorizing was different the hypotheses we were testing were different uh, the data were new and different, uh, and some of the analyses were a little bit different too. So the paper, although sort of about the same idea, looked about as different as you could imagine. So, um, so as it happens, the editorial team had switched at JAP between the first and second uh, times we submitted there. So Gilad uh, Chen was the editor the first time. And Lillian Eby and her team were that was the editor the second time. And Lillian, when I emailed her to ask if we could resubmit, she actually deferred to Gilad and said, you know, what do you think? And uh, it happens that Gilad wrote a paper in back in 2011 uh, about sort of slicing your data and being transparent about your submissions. And so I, you know, I I, I was hopeful. I said, look, you know, this is sort of what you wrote about and said, like, make it different in, in all these ways. So Ultimately, sure. he was very gracious. You know, he looked at the paper and said, yeah, I think I think it does merit uh, another review. So so I was, I was really fortunate. Yeah, definitely. I would say over time, you know, you started with one sample, you ended up with three. And one of them is actually um, an international sample. So what made you want to get a third sample from uh, another country? Well, um, we so this was. Um, we, we collected this additional data while the paper was under review at PSYCH. And um, I don't remember the specific reasons why, but there were multiple comments from the review team that basically suggested to us that we could address 
more than one of these comments by collecting some new data. Mm -hmm. And um, we decided to do two samples because the first sample is just one organization. And so part of it was, well, does this replicate, you know, is this generalizable in other contexts? So we, so, you know, uh, part of it's just convenience, right? Don, you know, has uh, a student who has contacts in China and we were able to do that. So we had this other, you know, Chinese context that, that was available to us. And then we also decided to do the third sample as well, because we're, you know, sort of, uh, you know, relying on MBA students and their work teams across a number of jobs and industries and organizations. So, so we we said, okay, maybe this is the best of you know. We're trying to do just to be stronger, right? To make a stronger yes. case that mm-hmm. this isn't just a fluke. So, so fortunately, you know, we were des- you know we were designing studies that had sort of complementary strengths, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are three unique contexts that really. Uh, increase the generalizability of the results. Yeah, I agree. And then, so once you had submitted the second time to JAP, about how long did it take to go from the first submission, or well, I guess it would be technically the second submission, um, to your first R&R with JAP? Yeah, so that's a good question. We submitted our paper in the middle of March of 2020, and it looks like we were granted the request to revise at the end of June. So by my calculations, it's a hundred days. That's to the best of my knowledge, that's what it what it was. Yeah, sure. And then um, do you remember about how long it took from the time you'd submitted it to when it went live? So that is, uh, well, from what I understand, I mean, it was received March 17, 2020. Uh, the revision was received February 20, of 2021 and then it was accepted three days later so um this this paper i think had been accepted you know 2021 but didn't you know end up going in print until 2022 so it was sort of like online first for for quite some time and i think part of that was because jap had the special issue on covid where a lot of those papers had to you know they took precedent right they're more sort of pressing you know this and a bunch of the other sort of like standard submissions uh, had to wait until those other papers got processed Sure, definitely. Was there any feedback in the reviews from the second time you submitted at JAP or even even the PSYCH submission that kind of made you roll your eyes and think, come on now, that's a little silly? Um, or did you feel like everything that was brought up in the review process was very justifiable and you were like, all right, I'm going to throw my hands up, we're going to do it? <laughs> yeah, so um, in general, the reviews were very good. Um, the, the quality of the comments was was high and i think that as a result of the reviewers comments and the editors comments the paper got better overall like throughout the process mm-hmm. that said th- i did sort of look back at the reviewer document and i did notice one comment that w- is a bit of an eye roller so one reviewer comment said well you didn't this was you know in like the initial submission you didn't mention your theory in the abstract and so it's not clear how important this theory is to the framing of your paper I thought, like, give me a break. <laughs> like, you know, if you want, like, we can mention the theory in the abstract. So that to me was like, okay, all right, sure. But overall, I thought the reviews were, were really good. Earlier said that in the original JP submission, you had pushback and you uh, asked for an appeal on your initial review. Um, so for the second time in JP, was there anything that you pushed back on? 
he felt the reviewers. Mm, you know, I think I I would rather stick with my version instead of what you are suggesting. Yeah, um, this this was not so much a suggestion as it was like a, an observation or a question. Uh, but reviewers mentioned that we didn't conceptualize or or even operationalize norms at the group level, uh, but instead you know, uh, treated them as individual perceptions. And this was a comment at Psych as well. And so we sort of expected to, to get it again at, at JEP. Um, and ultimately we decided not to try to treat norms as this group level phenomenon, these aggregated perceptions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where we did push back a little bit and said, you know, look, OB scholars treat norms either or right like some treat it at the group level some treat it at the person level uh if you look at the incivility literature in particular the dominant way that scholars sort of think about and treat norms is as individual perceptions so we wanted to sort of stay consistent with that in addition we argued that you know treating norms as individual perceptions really fit with and was consistent with our theorizing um and that and that treating them as individual perceptions doesn't invalidate our findings right it's not absolutely essential that we have to treat these things as you know group level properties and so you know we we explained you know in all those different ways uh why we felt you know it wasn't this fatal flaw and that it was actually you know appropriate and reasonable uh, to treat norms at the at the person level at the perceptual level for our academic listeners would you say that that's probably a way that they could contribute and build off your work in the future yeah, I think that's certainly possible. You know, my my view is that there's a lot of room to uh, to do work at the dyadic level. I don't, you know, uh, as you guys mentioned earlier, like there's just not as much of that. Most of the work on mistreatment in particular is at the person level. Um, so I think the diet space is largely untapped. I mean, you could look at new outcomes, you could look at new mediators, you could look at moderators, all sorts of things with the focus being, you know, me and you. Right. Just our relationship. I think there's still a lot of uh, uncharted territory there. Do you have any advice for Ph.D. students or even junior faculty that you want to share about how you think you were able to be successful at publishing uh, with JAP? Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's lots of advice. There are lots of suggestions that I could make that you probably heard from others. But I think one that really stands out to me is is that. You should, I think you should really t- tackle or address interesting and important research questions. Uh, I think that's likely to increase your chances of publishing, not just at JAP, but all of our top journals. And I think this, this advice runs somewhat counter to what you might hear from other people. Uh, other people will tell PhD students and, and junior faculty, right, just, you know, sort of you know, do small incremental things, you know, because you have to get a lot of pubs in order to get tenure or to get a job in the first place. And and I think, you know, what better time than really early in your career to take big chances because you've got your whole career ahead of you. And if something doesn't pan out, like you've still got lots of time, right, to figure things out. Uh, and, and honestly, you know, it's the interesting and the important questions that that help really advance our understanding that help move the field uh, and help shape the field uh, into what it is. So, so that's my advice is to, to really go after these big, important questions because it's important for our, our, our science and, and for society. I appreciate you speaking to us about your, 
your paper and also giving advice for PhD students because you know I want to know what it takes to be successful and published in top journals. You said you know go big early. You know while we have while we have the opportunity and the chance. I think that's really good advice for us. Yeah, I mean I guess I should qualify that and okay. say. You should have a portfolio, right? I mean, not, you can have some smaller, inc- more incremental things, but you shouldn't only have those. I think you should have some big, you know, take some big swings uh, mm-hmm. because they could be home runs, right? Yes. Um, and, and, you know, if you strike out, it's okay because you've got a lot of time still ahead of you. What sure. is the research project that you are most excited about right now that you're working on? Uh, that's a good question. I've got a couple uh, that I'm really excited about. I've got an in- intervention study where the data are collected and we're writing it up. That's with Lauren Locklear and Anthony Klotz. I'm excited about that one. Um, and I've got uh, another paper under review that's about intent, um, the intent of mistreatment. And another one, what I've been sp- spending a lot of time thinking about recently is, is about language about linguistics like what we say what people say how they say it that affects our understanding of of mistreatment so so those are some of the the ones i'm most excited about oh yeah i think the linguistics literature is so great and i think we're just starting to see it in the management and the organization literature so and i know they have in the entrepreneurship literature quite a bit nick is more in that area than i am but i think that's definitely a promising future direction for scholars to get into as well yeah, for sure. I mean, there's just I could talk I could talk for another hour about this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Taylor. We really appreciate you coming on to We Should Probably Be Studying. And if you ever need anything, please feel free to reach out. If you ever want to do another follow up interview, we'll be glad to have you back. OK, great. Thank you again so much for having me. And uh, I really love what you guys are doing. So keep up the good work. Oh, that was good. That was that was cool. That was cool. But yeah, I think he was good. I think you understanding the the OB literature definitely helps. He, you know, you have the bond there. Yeah. But no, he was really great. I really liked him. I think that's good. Mm-hmm.